Hello and a very warm welcome. My name's Dr Joanna Bucknell and you're listening to episode 17 of Talking About Immersive Theatre, or Tate, T-A-I-T for short. Unsurprisingly, this series is about immersive, interactive and participatory performance. I travel about to chat with immersive theatre makers in their natural habitats. So that's often a bar, cafe, theatre, but more often than not, a derelict brown site of one kind or another to get some insight into the approach that they take to making immersive theatre. I think that's more than enough explanation. So without further ado, I'm going to let you get at the next instalment. Hi, so I'm here at Exeter Street Hall in Brighton with Faye. Uh, from Actors of Dionysus. So, hello, Faye. Hello. <laughs> so, first of all, tell me a little bit about yourself. What's your background and how did you come to be involved in kind of theatre? Okay, I trained as an actor um, and left drama school pretty sure that I didn't want to be one anymore. Right, where did you go? Where I went to study? the Academy of Live and Recorded Arts. Yep. Um, and I loved being on stage, but being an actor was, was just not for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was writing and I was directing by that point. And I took a bit of time out from the industry because I wasn't very well through my 20s. Yeah. Um, but writing was something that I could do. So I continued to write. Yeah. And then I set up my first production company in a sanctum, um, having won a competition to put a play on Great. at the Leicester Square Theatre. Lovely. So very quickly I had to learn how to produce and how to direct and yeah. how to write and cast and everything um, because there was this theatre being held for me yeah. for, for part of the summer. It's a steep learning curve, isn't it? Because there's no real way you can absolutely. learn those things. You absolutely. just have to jump in. There were lots and lots of phone That's calls. Fine. <laughs> Don't worry, no problem here um, the actors. <laughs> there were lots and lots of phone calls to people that I'd worked with saying, how do we do this, what do we do? Yeah. Um, we did the production, it was a success and from there I produced a number of other shows with people that I knew and that also became my day job as well so I would get contact from lots of different arts organizations saying that we think we've got a project we don't really know what to do so I started doing lots of strategic work for other companies but at the same time writing myself well you learn so much as well doing that just kind of jumping in absolutely and And it's lovely (laughs) to be able to help other people to to put on the shows that they want to because nowadays if you want to do you know good different quality exciting dynamic work you very often you do have to make it yourself yes you do I've got exactly the same problem with my own company I mean, we've been plugging away for 10 years but yeah. we met, we're kind of we're experimental end of experimental so right. trying to get that produced and trying to do that it's so hard it it's is hard. really hard so I went in and out and I did a bit of that for other people at the same time was I was writing I wrote a few plays that were produced by other people. I wrote a TV series, mm-hmm. um, which was picked up by a broadcaster in Canada. Um, so writing, 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 and uh, doing a few bits myself. And at the same time, this was becoming a career. Um, about, gosh, how long ago now? Just over a year ago, I was asked to become the director of the Fitzrovia Chapel, which is a Great. central London arts venue. Yeah. Um, and encouraged to continue to produce my own work Perfect. so I'd sat on the board for Actors of Dionysus a couple of years ago ah, okay. um, and helped them with some strategic stuff and, and that had been great and I knew that they were planning a tour of Antigone mm-hmm. um, and I just got to talking with Tamsin and I said there's another show here there's a show outside of that world mm-hmm. and then went away and thought about it and the idea didn't go um, 
That's always the way. It's the ones that bubble away in the back and Absolutely. just refuse to leave your brain. And it was the <laughs> dynamic between these two women. And, and I just kept coming back to various themes. And, and as is always the way when you write, things that were happening in my private life came up. And I thought, there's a show. There's a show here. And so uh, over Christmas of this year, my mum was in hospital. And you do a lot of sitting when someone's in hospital. You do, and waiting. An awful lot of sitting. And I wrote the show. Um, And we thought, right, well, we'll put it in the fringe. But with everything we do, we like to do some sort of social mobility kind of work. And and I am a working class person who went to a not very good drama school. And I was educated in a comprehensive school. And so the fact that I got to do any Greek drama was pretty amazing. Absolutely. And I talked to Tamsin and we found out that a lot of the people that apply to Actors of Dionysus are not from a working class background because generally we don't have the confidence because we have no experience. All the access, and this is something I feel quite strongly about actually, and I think um, I studied in London but Mm. afterwards had to leave immediately because I just, there's no way after being an undergraduate I could afford to stay on and all my friends who did had their parents living in mm. London so and you have to spend if you want to be a jobbing actor mm. those three four years just doing things for free and yeah. just being in London yeah. and the only people who can afford that are not absolutely and you, and if you background. don't if you didn't do Latin at school yeah and you didn't read classics at school it's really it's daunting really inaccessible really daunting unless you find and of course again how would you know to find the kind of translations exactly that are done in a more exactly. contemporary approach. So I think you're right. I think so we really looked at this and we thought, actually, we want to do something with this. And we were already doing the show. The show was written. Um, we'd booked the venue, cast the principles, and I said, look, there's something we can do here. And we stayed up all night and wrote a bid to the Arts Council. Mm-hmm. And the Arts Council agreed to fund. That's fabulous. So our company, our chorus here, have had probably about... Eight nine hundred pounds worth of training for free over the past three weeks. With we have one of the best choreographers in the business and movement director Wendy Statham, who Mm -hmm. um, did choreography for the opening of the Olympic Games. We had Adele Ward, who's a communication and performance expert who works in all the opera houses. We brought her in, so we've given them an experience. Absolutely, and we and we just wanted to say, look, come try this. This is a play with links to the Greek. And hopefully they'll take it on. Yeah. And somehow all of these things came together and we've ended up here. <laughs> Fabulous. That's yes. really great. Yeah. So when did all that process begin? Was it? It happened really, really quickly. Yeah. I had a conversation with Tamsin about Antigone and about the fact that I felt that there was another show in the autumn. Mm-hmm. I wrote the show over Christmas. We submitted our application to Brighton, Fringe wow. and the Arts Council in January. Wow. And I think that's quite impressive because I've done numerous Arts Council um, forms myself mm. and they are hefty, dense things to navigate your way through. They, they are, but we had such a clear idea of what we wanted to do mm-hmm. and I was producing with Tamsin, who's Artistic Director of AOD, and yeah. Andrea Newland, who is um, playing Alexandra in the show, but she's such an experienced actress. Mm-hmm. She's also a registered sign language interpreter, so she was Great. keen. Every one of our shows is interpreted. That, that is so great. So That's we fabulous. just had this really strong idea. So there was just, it was it was several weeks, while my mum was still in hospital, of just emails flying back and forth. I've added this to the application, can you have a look? Yeah. Um, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And we sent it off. Yeah. 
And I don't think any of us were convinced that it would come back. And so we were planning this really small show that wouldn't have a chorus. To do it in, in, instead, in case you didn't get the funding. Yeah, because yeah. the plan had always been to do the show. So we thought of it was course. going to be a really, really small, intimate show with just three actors. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, we got the nod from the Arts Council so like, and it became <laughs> this epic sort of, yeah. Um, but they have just been fabulous yeah. and they bring so much to it. Well, that enables all of the enrichment side of the project Absolutely. and being able to offer that kind of yeah. training being able to offer that kind of access that I guess you wouldn't be able to offer yes. without that funding yes. support yeah and what was the how did you choose your venue for the piece so we wanted to go slightly site specific the the play is set in a military hospital mm-hmm it's set in sort of the morgue of a military hospital. Yeah. And we had a lot of conversations about what that would look like. And in my mind, um, they move hospitals regularly. Mm-hmm. So when there's a bombing, all of a sudden they're all bust out to the next space, which is why our okay. set looks as though they've literally just arrived. Yeah. So I said to, to Andrea and Tamsin, who both live in Brighton, I want a hall an underground car park, yeah. a derelict shop. It needs to be a big cavernous space. Yeah. So we looked through various spaces that were available um, and then they came here and straight away so there was something there. about yeah. the space, something about the rafters, the big fireplaces. Mm-hmm. Um, we wanted a, a, ideally a separate entrance and an exit. Yeah. And we just walked in and it was, it was great. Perfect. And they're doing a lot of work here. They do an awful lot of community work. They do an awful lot of theatre and they've been really welcoming and just they've really wanted us to be here and that helps that does hugely (laughs) i think when you're involved in some of the venues um like the warren for Mm. example you know there is such quick turnaround you have an hour in your space and you're in and you're out and you're amongst kind of hundreds of shows that are on there and i think that brings its own challenges but um, i'm the same i work in non-traditional theatrical spaces that do bring a lot of challenge but then what they do is they bring character Mm. and they become a part of the history yeah. of that work, I think, which is I think really I think it's important if you do something like this to have both a very strong idea about the aesthetic you want, but also a real flexibility in how you create it. To let it kind of so seep we've into yeah it. we've looked at we came in and I wanted to suspend flags or something, and we came in and we saw the rafters, and I spoke to a, a dear friend of mine, Anna Thomas, who designs banners for the film industry. Uh-huh. So she made all the banners for Pride, oh, um, for the Bourne films. Yeah, so yeah. she makes these large-scale pieces. And I thought, if we can get some of those, it will fill whichever space we've got. So phoned her up, and she's been amazing. She's created these two banners that we're, wow. going, to, we're going to drop in. I'm so looking forward to coming. <laughs> so, it's all, so it's all just been a case of, this is what we'd like to have. Mm-hmm. And we'll just get in the space and see what can happen. Because we're going to have to move it because there's messy play for some toddlers on the morning of one of our shows. And oh, I think wow, that there might okay. be some Tai Chi one night. And we yeah, just say, yeah. <laughs> well, that's um, always, that's the other thing as well, isn't it? When you work outside of traditional theatrical mm-hmm. spaces is you have to work around Absolutely. the operations of that, that space's life. Yeah, yeah. And what happens in it, yeah. which I think is really lovely. So for the people listening, um, it, it's highly unlikely this is going to go out potentially before they could see it here at Brighton. Yeah. But are you going to be taking it kind of beyond? There have been a number of discussions okay. about it. We're, we're not really sure at this stage. Um, 
it fits very nicely alongside the Antigone story. Yeah. So there's the possibility there. Um, yeah, and there are a number of ways that we could take it elsewhere. Yeah. Um, but it's been such a roller coaster to get it this far that, mm. that I think we'll... It's just, at the moment, you're still in that pre-stage as well. Absolutely. So I suppose once it's all going and audiences yeah. are coming yeah. then you have that chance to just take a breath absolutely and, <laughs> and then go back to <laughs> the real world for a bit and then come out again exactly. but of course you get halfway through something like this and then you start having ideas for other shows of course you do so <laughs> so for the people listening could you just give them a little without obviously it's always difficult not to give spoilers as well isn't it but can you tell them a little bit about she denied nothing what is it kind of about you've said a little bit yeah so in the main story in antigone um Creon, Antigone's uncle, who is the king, uh, decrees that she cannot bury one of her two brothers Mm -hmm. who dies in the war because he's a traitor. And with Greek mythology, if they didn't bury a body, then the person sort of floated around in the world and didn't join their family in heaven. So Antigone steals the body and buries it. And that's the storyline that you follow through in Antigone. So in She Denied Nothing, we... Uh, we arrive in the space which is the last place the body was seen okay and she denied nothing is sort of the domestic consequences of the princess stealing the body um and it's around how the body was stolen and that's so interesting and the political dimensions of that as well because of course in all the greek drama the focus is on kind of the best possible folk so it's always kind of like kings and queens and no consideration is given no unlike Shakespeare where he sort of starts to develop in those kind of characters who operate outside Mm. of that kind of royal and a lot of my actually the majority of my work for theatre looks at the domestic consequences for greater action and I Mm. whenever I you know I watch anything Mm. on tv or I go and see anything I'm always wondering what happened to the ordinary people yeah, at that time? Exactly. And these are the ordinary people who get caught up in something. So in some ways, um, it's a little bit... I was talking to a company earlier, actually, and their mm. work was about something that happens in between it, and it's mm. like that kind of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, yeah. a dead kind of... The other characters, what's yes. going on with these people, what happens yeah. to these people? I also was very keen... A lot was coming up for me at the time I was writing this around, you know, motherhood and Mm. the way that women are portrayed um, on film and TV and the way that women who don't have children are portrayed. And actually, during the course of the rehearsal period with the French elections, there was there was lots that was coming out about, you know, condemning a woman who is a fascist. But, but condemning her because she doesn't because she doesn't, doesn't have children, children. Um, yeah. and yeah. and in in our own elections there's, there's been a fair bit of that as well and so yes, there has someone actually completely dropped out of the running didn't they because of comments comments about about whether whether you have a sense of sort of humanity if you don't have, have children, children. Um, and this play explores the difference in courage when you do and when you don't yeah. Um, and it's still one of those strange kind of taboo, I think, subjects in our culture. Some yeah. of the things that sit around. I mean, I'm not a mother, but I've mm. been trying to be for over seven years. Oh, bless you. And so there's this whole unspoken Absolutely. Kind of guilt and shame Absolutely. that kind of rests underneath I mean, I'm, that. I'm in my mid-30s in the process of getting divorced and I don't have children. Yeah. And so I've noticed that society doesn't really know where to put me now. Yeah, that happens as well. So I'm, kind of, um, I'm in my heading towards my late 30s mm. and that's now starting to become 
the assumptions have stopped. Yeah. Because that happened for a long time. Too. Right. So when are you going yes. to yeah. have a family? When yeah. are you going to get married? When are you going to start a family? Yeah. Just the assumption that, that and, of and course we, you're going to just do that. And we read, there was a, an, a brilliant article written by Lucy Mangan a, a few weeks ago, and I actually cheered when I read it, and it was the article was about parental worship, and that mm. in society now we... Um, we really rave about a woman who's had a child, you know, know, and it's just the most amazing thing. And it is wonderful. And and I have lots of women in my life that have children. um, And I think that motherhood is incredible. And I, you know, I've started to question whether or not I'd actually be able to do it. Um, (laughs) Well, the longer this goes on, the more and more I think, why am I... As their kids get older, and I think you've not slept in seven years. But (laughs) equally there's a, a lot of stigma against women that don't and yeah. you know you know women who've had children are seen as these angels who are not at all selfish and that's not my experience no, of, of motherhood it's not actually the other way and so this play explores a lot of of how women deal with challenge of yeah. how it looks a lot at maternity it also looks a lot at, at maternal behavior for people that don't have children because mm-hmm. I don't have a child but my mother's been really unwell lately I yeah. have effectively been mothering that's the thing isn't it you get to a point I think in your familial relations where mm. you your role shifts whether you're a mother Absolutely. or not in terms of starting to care for parents yeah so there's a lot about nurture and there's a lot about um the the sort of social and domestic consequences of larger action mm-hmm. um but it's set within a military hospital so yeah. you have the confines of this yeah, very world. ordered mm-hmm. world and um, i think it's really great as well because even now i think female parts in the theater and in film are still really limited mm. and really few and far between and this at this point in the year this always comes comes to a head because all my students are looking to go on to audition for drama school right. looking for duologues with strong female mm. leads in yeah. them looking for monologues and of course they're all told no lady macbeth no romeo and juliet mm. and so you start to get really diminished in mm. terms and that's what always reminds me this time of year how scant i think female good female mm. roles still are and I female think, roles that are not about romance yeah. or you know even the good female roles are about some woman whose husband's cheated on her yeah, and yeah. in this play there is virtually no reference made mm-hmm. to love romance yeah well the greek plays are actually a really good source of strong female mm. leads interestingly mm. enough actually <laughs> they are although they do mostly end up dead yeah they do mostly yeah. end up dead and just reported by some yes some messenger yeah. off stage so-and-so's done this yes kill themselves actually most females yeah are either murdered by someone else or i worked in opera for quite a while and that generally they just got tb and yeah died and died so, <laughs> it's really so it's really nice to have you know a group of women here who um don't get tb are alive yeah yeah for the most and part. present which for is the most part which is quite nice and quite unusual yeah so how have you gone about the process? Obviously, you've written this. So is the text that kind of starting point? Yes. For me, I start writing text from the point of an interaction. So I have, I usually have little flashes in my mind of a two, three line exchange mm-hmm. um, or a comment or a point that I want someone to make. And, yeah. I, and I build around there. What I've tried to do with this is to stick to whilst it's contemporary, to give it the feel of Greek. Mm -hmm. So we have a chorus, we have a messenger, um, but they're integrated within our world. Um, Because I always hoped with this that this would be, it's a step to accessibility. Yeah, yeah. 
Where does the audience figure in your process as well? At what point do you start thinking about the experience that the audience have in engaging with the work? I think about it as I write Mm -hmm. um, with something like this. I knew where they were in the room. I had an idea of how we moved people around them. Mm -hmm. Um, We had lots of discussions about what is immersive theatre. Absolutely, that's what I was going to come to next, that, that horrible heavy elephant that means everything and nothing. <laughs> well, so for me, my work was described by somebody else about five or six years ago as a theatrical installation. Okay, yeah. So I have produced installation art myself, yeah. and my theatrical work, whilst it's linear, it has that quality. Yeah. So what I say to the company is, we would do this show even if they weren't here. Yeah. So if nobody shows up, it will, it still, will happen. still happen. So it's not for me. The immersive theatre that we're producing here is not about engaging with the audience. It's yeah. not about talking to them or responding to them. Yeah. We don't do that. Yeah. We invite them in to a world. That's very interesting. Gareth White is one of the first people who began to write about this, and he mm. he described immersive theatre as theatre very specifically allowing the audience access to the inside. That's exactly what we're trying to do. I went to something that was described as immersive theatre about 15 years ago Mm -hmm. that a friend of mine was in. It was shortly after I came out of drama school. And it was a great play. And I actually, the reviews for it were stunning and lots of, you know, very clever people went to see it and loved it. But it didn't work for me Mm -hmm. because the actors were engaging with the audience. And so when he came up to me and tried to sell me drugs, I wanted to giggle because I knew him. And my own... And the reactions of people around, some people will have a response that's not part of the world. Of course they will. And then it informs everything else. Everyone else as well. This is one of the things I've had, is even when I've been to a piece that has been really exciting and really great, mm. other audience members have ruined Completely. My and they take you out of the world. Yeah. So here you come into a world and something happens around you. Mm-hmm. And I think that is really interesting and I... I'm, I am working on it. I am working on a book to try to make some distinctions because yeah. I think people have. So, I don't know how it happened, but interactive seems to have become synonymous with immersive. Yes, and I, for me, it and doesn't work. Not, no, they're not the same no. thing. I think immersive theatre is very specific and very particular, Absolutely. and operates in that way of allowing people inside a fictive yeah. space and a fictive yeah. world. There, are, of course, there are lots of other things like my work could not happen if the audience don't come. Right. We do stuff, but it's live art. Mm. And I would never describe it as theatre mm. because it's not. I invite people to come and do a series of things with right. me right. in that moment. So, of course, if they didn't come, then it wouldn't happen. No then it wouldn't happen. <laughs> so, whereas this would. Yeah, yeah. If and nobody I, shows up, we'll do it anyway. And I think the problem we've got, especially in the press for the theatre at the moment, is just this holding everything up against Punch Drunk. Yes. And I think that's hugely problematic and very reductive in terms of all the other forms that are happening but I think it's partly because there's been this issue where immersive and interactive have just instantly become they have. synonymous and things like secret cinema have, have sort of exacerbated the problem yes and I think so audiences are not entirely sure and I think performers are not entirely sure no, as to quite how not. it works and of course producers love that word immersive because the audience seem to have a huge appetite for it so yeah. it just gets used and used and used to yeah. describe things I mean, I notice this, I think, a lot more because I'm a researcher. So, like, when I go to the festival, mm. the first thing I do is open up the thing and circle everything and anything that says immersive or interactive. Right. And so I go to see a huge amount of work, mm. and yet I would say 40% of it is not immersive mm. or interactive. 
but of course they're done and couched yeah. in a certain way to get audiences yeah. to get bums on seats. So I think at the moment there is a problem. I think it is unclear. So we always, I always try and say theatrical installation rather than yeah. play. Or I mean, it is a play, but yeah, of course. I don't want people to think they're going to come and sit in rows. Well, I think narrative, fictive, immersive theatre has its relationship with installation mm. and actually comes out of that promenade and that site specific, yeah. which has been happening for a really long time. Yeah. It's not new in no. that respect. And so I think the lineage of perhaps immersive theatre mm. kind of comes from that. And that makes a lot more sense. I mean, I've been to see like Medea in a castle in Edinburgh, mm. which was incredible. And the audi- the um, performance never spoke to me at all once. No. It happened around me. But it was more powerful because of the sight. Yes. And that, in its sense, I was immersed because I was put into this yeah. world through yeah. the sight and the text that was happening across that site. Yeah. But I would never call it interactive. No, no. But I think there is a, a confusion of expectation from actors and from absolutely audience. Absolutely. And then this whole, you know, if it's not a punch drunk dramaturgy, it's somehow not yeah. immersive theatre. Yeah. <laughs> Which is hugely... And I love punch drunk, don't get me wrong, I really do. It's just that I think it's unfair to hold everything up against that dramaturgy. I think it is, but I also think it's um, it's restrictive for them because yeah, that's what they do and that's their company style. And absolutely, um, the, one of the shows that I'm hoping to go on to next is 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 not immersive, but actually carries a lot of sort of style stylized bits and techniques and things that are often used in immersive. So. Mm-hmm. I think audiences have to show up nowadays and understand that they're going to get something a bit different. I think so. Even when you go and sit in a Pross Arch theatre, yeah. you don't know. But I am I am, and always have been the audience member that doesn't want to sit on the end of a row because I don't want a performer to come mm-hmm. and interact with me. Yeah, whereas I'm the opposite, that. I'm completely... But my partner is, is exactly... He, mm. he hates it, he's so shy, he doesn't like people approaching for, him For me, it's just I don't want... I'm going to see something. Yeah. I want to experience something around me. Yeah. I don't want to take part in it. But you don't want it. to participate. No. Yeah, yeah. So this is probably all been born out of... <laughs> this is something that <laughs> I wouldn't that, mind coming course. to see. So in terms of the text then, because this is another thing as well, is, you know, plays, you can get them published and you can disseminate them and other people can put them on. Mm. But with a lot of these kind of approaches mm. of immersion and interaction... That's much more difficult. Mm. So would you be able to kind of publish the text and someone else be able to pick yeah. it up and put it on? Yeah. Yeah. So th- that's really interesting. To yeah. And, it, and I would be really keen to do it because I think that we, I had a really strong idea of the visual for this. Mm. And I worked, brought Wendy in because I knew that she would just do something sort of dynamic and bold that I wouldn't have even thought of. Mm-hmm. But it would be really interesting to see someone else pick it up and see what they did yeah. with it. Yeah. And I think that's, that's quite difficult with a lot of immersive work that's yeah. happening at the moment as well. So it kind of stays, and I think maybe that's part of the problem as well, until they start to become accessible for other people to pick up and yeah. inhabit. Like it would be so fun, for example, for Punch Drunk to publish their kind of rules mm. and the structure of their piece that someone yeah. else could potentially, you know, like college kids could pick it up and yeah. put it on. Yeah. Would be amazing. But I think also I wouldn't, I would never want to send this out with that many rules. Yeah. Because when yeah. you look at things like Attempts on Her Life, which is the very early stage I of this kind of work. I love that so much. It's one of my favourite plays. But it's, every time you see it, it's done really differently. Yeah. And really I like the fact that when you pick the script up, it's so it open. doesn't direct you in any particular way. No and I would want to do the same with this. Just yeah. say, 
you know this is the take text. it where you want make yeah. it make it as you want and mm-hmm. one, one of my favorite plays is Tension of Life um, Sarah Kane's 448 I'm so old fashioned <laughs> I I'm love not a Sarah Kane fan aren't you I really <sighs> like although I really like Phaedra's Love but I've seen it done very badly by many many undergraduates <laughs> But I quite like th- seeing things done badly because there's a certain creativity in somebody picking something you love and ruining it. There is, there is. There's always, there's, I mean, for me, when I'm watching student work, because I'm marking it as well, it's irrelevant yeah. whether I enjoy it or not, yeah. of course. But yeah, um, they always really sort of latch on to Sarah Kane. So I've yes. seen it done a gazillion yeah. times. Yeah. The worst one was probably an immersive version of Crave, actually, Ooh. was horrifying. <laughs> I just, I, I think, you know, I, I have a bit of a, I have a bit of a thing about celebrating the work of people that were having such a dreadful time and were just so very troubled. Yes. Um, not just in theatre, but in the arts in general. Yes, there's a huge problem with that in live art yeah. practice as well, actually. I think some of the practices that are celebrated are problematic in terms yeah. of people's well-being. Yeah, I, I've, I've regularly had big debates about... Um, Kerouac versus Ginsburg because of course they were both absolute geniuses but Ginsburg produced work for years and years and years and years and years and produced some amazing work as he grew older and I think Jack Kerouac was a genius but cut his life too short because yeah he had you know drink and drug problems and Absolutely. and I think that if we must celebrate these people's work but actually we must say there was a cost. Well, highlight the cost of it, yeah. like with Artaud yeah. as well. You know, one of the the great, the greats, and yet, yeah, he had such a troubled life and yes. so many difficulties with mental health, and it's kind of yeah played down. I think quite a lot, and yeah. I think those discussions need to be yeah kind of open. And mm. in HE, of course, we have to be really mindful of yes. how our students engage with some of those things because the themes are troubling and difficult yeah. and challenging as well. And we have a culture of triggering now too, which I think is something we have to be really mindful of as well, yeah. which becomes challenging. <laughs> yes, I can imagine. Especially at university, you know, we're not trained te- teachers, so we're not trained mm. to deal with kind of those sorts of challenging behaviours because mm. we're all just doctors. It's a really <laughs> fragile time as well. It's a really fragile time really in anybody's fragile life. Time. I went to drama school at 18 um, and it was much too young. Yeah. Well, when I was applying, when I was uh, just leaving school, most of them wouldn't take you to a 21 back then. So I was offered places at three much much better drama schools if I'd wait until I was if 21, wait 21. And, and you say it to an 18 year old and of course and then, of course me too I, well, I was 16 and I wanted to yeah. go somewhere from that point onwards yeah. and they were all just like no no you're basically a child and you need some life experience yeah. to be good at performing it would it would have been for me it wasn't so much about the performance but I would have been in a better place to handle that work Absolutely. from 21 onwards I agree but but then you know I wouldn't have met half the people that I met and yeah I wouldn't exactly be the now, courses so. that we take so yeah. in the end I went to Brit school for a little while so but I think they do potentially take people too young who are not equipped to deal yeah. with that the pressure of that working yes. environment yeah because it is intensive and it, it takes is. a very specific mindset, I think, to actually take advantage of it. I think well drama schools age. can be quite damaging places. I agree. They're not great for self-esteem. They are not. <laughs> Whereas university, we try to be massively inclusive. And yeah. actually, for us, it's much more about building creative makers. We're mm. much more interested in having mm. our students leave us critical thinkers and creative makers, not actors. Yeah. But trying to explain that to them on open days that doesn't just instantly put them off because of course they want to come and sing and dance yes <laughs> and learn how to come and sing yeah. and dance yeah <laughs> so we're always fighting against that public perception of yes. what drama school and acting and what even what theatre is yeah. just expanding their view of and that's only going to I think increase and become a more of a problem as they strip mm. the arts out of 
school. But it's why I think projects like this are really important. I mean, I, I went into producing my own work because I was ill and yeah. I was from a working class background. I had to have a job and I was unwell. Of course. So auditioning, not having a day job was not going to be an option for me and not I had to find a, a way to make my creative life work mm-hmm. and through a variety of um, mistakes and what have you I've ended up in a place where I actually make a living from doing this you exactly know? and doing it in a way that is much more suitable for you and in a way that really pulls on all of your yeah and I love it because I have creativity. I have um the sort of strategic side of the work that I do, which is running the chapel and looking at our creative programming and mm-hmm. it's multidisciplinary. So we have some incredible sculpture and lectures and yeah. we're in this gorgeous heritage space, like a, a gold dripping ceiling. It's oh, just yeah. the most beautiful place. I don't think I've actually been to that space. It only, it was, it, the restoration only finished last year. Oh. Three and a half million pounds worth of restoration. Wow, I'll keep my eye open there. Come and I visit. London often, Come and visit. So, yeah. It's incredible. But I, So I'm there and I'm doing programming and my brain is working in that way yeah. and it gives me it gives me the structure that I need to be able to put my head into this world and yeah. do this as well. But so it must be incredible to facilitate other people and to facilitate yeah. audiences having access to work Absolutely. as well. I think it's really exciting. It's it's great. And it's and the thing that I come back to time and time again, which I didn't even realise in my early 20s was a problem, and I didn't realise when I left drama school thinking I wasn't going to be an actor, I hadn't identified what the problem was, and the problem was for me is that the industry conflicts with my personal values, yeah. and I would never have been happy. No. I would never no. have been happy. So now, through failures, mistakes, and a lot of coincidences and good luck, I've ended up in a position yeah. where I can produce my own work, and I can yeah. do it in a way that doesn't challenge, that doesn't challenge my values, and yeah. I can ensure everyone gets the right experience. Which is fabulous. I was mm. the same, I thought I wanted to be an actor for a long, long time, mm. did some training and realised that it just wasn't for me, I had for, for similar reasons mm. as well, and it took me a very long time to find yeah. my way. <laughs> yes, it does, it does, and I think, but you do get there, so you, I feel really fortunate, there. and now we have this, this amazing company of... Yeah actors that are just starting out and we're able to give them this experience mm-hmm. um, thanks to the Arts Council we're able to put put them in groups with these amazing mentors and professionals and just yeah, let so them play get that, which is fabulous and that's yeah. what, let's face it what all theatre pretty much boils down to is the opportunity to play yeah. and the opportunity to present that to others mm. and I think that's kind of the crux of it really yeah. and if you can enable that to people who wouldn't necessarily have access to it I think that is a really noble thing to do. Well, I think that's probably a nice place to start to draw it in. So um, this probably won't go out in time for people to catch it here, but I suspect this won't be kind of the end for the I place. hope not. I hope not. I, I believe we're having it filmed, and I know that we've there's been so many relationships that have been developed through the course of this production that, yeah. that we will definitely be doing something else. Um, yeah. Andrea and I are looking at another show, Um and we'll, we'll just see what happens. We'll go and have a big rest. Yes. So, that's what summer's we'll for in, in, in the uh, theatre world, isn't it? You can reflect, have a look back, Absolutely. see how everything's gone. Yeah. Ready to start again in usually, what, September, October time. Yeah, I've, I've got a summer <laughs> of planning visual art for, my, for the chapel yeah. and probably moving house. And what's the chapel's website so people can go the and have fitzroviachapel.org. a The fitzroviachapel.org and it's, okay. we're just off Oxford Street and it Ooh. used to be, it's formerly the chapel for the Middlesex Hospital. It's okay. a secular chapel. So Lovely. no faith, but wow. it is just 
beautiful it has a gold mosaic ceiling um, and it's just opened and it will we will be starting to program with sort of sculpture we've had some amazing photography exhibitions and we will have theatre at some point do you have a specific ethos there is there a kind of particular kind of direction for the sort of work you're programming we want to get it is just the most beautiful space you'll have ever seen so we're looking a lot at the importance of beauty because this is a hospital chapel, and if you've ever been to a hospital chapel, they're, they're generally pretty bleak places. They are really bleak places. This is incredible, um, because beauty is really important. Yeah. And when you're going through a difficult time in your life, the respite. So we, we talk a lot about quiet contemplation, and mm. we talk about reflection, and just being a space for all people to come and take a moment from their lives mm. and soak in the beauty. And the space is so theatrical. Yeah. You just walk in, and there's a shift um, so even if you come and there in for are very two few minutes. spaces like that in contemporary life the chance to just take a moment to be mindful Completely. to take a moment to think about yourself and to reflect and it helps it really really helps and really we're just does. we're in the middle of a busy bustling city mm-hmm. the chapel is just a, it just looks like a little brick chapel from the outside you would not notice it and then you wow. walk in and, and are just blown away so well, I should keep my eye and hopefully come and people visit. listening will come and visit and pop Great. in. Lots of my listeners are based in London, so it's easy for them to pop come in, especially see. if you're central like that. So, yeah. And in terms of following you and yes. what you're doing, is what's the best way? Facebook, Twitter? Have you got a website? Uh, I have a website and, um, yeah, I'm on Twitter and not really on Facebook, but um, it will either be listed on my website or the chapel. Plan is another show early next year. Great. I have my own installation, which... I will do at some point. It's, it's, I, <laughs> it involves interviewing a lot of people and then putting myself in a room for a bit of time. So we have to do that. But um, okay, okay. And what's your website? Just so it's fakies.co.uk. Lovely. Um, but yes, we'll see. Brilliant. We'll see what happens. Well, I'm coming to see the piece next week. I'm not sure. My Great. I've got it here, actually. When am I coming? I've got such a ridiculous schedule. I am coming on the 4th of June. The 4th of June. At 7.30. Oh, great. Brilliant. Well, they, well, I've got my poor company here. have got a show an hour. Okie dokie, yeah. So um, we're really cracking the whip, but they're supposed to look like, you know, weary, weary. hospital so they, patients so they will be and weary things. By that point, oh, they'll be hopefully. absolutely exhausted. <laughs> Mine's the same, because ours is one-on-one, so we have to do loads of shows back-to-back in right. order to get any bums yeah. on seats. So um, for the audience, it's lovely. It's just an hour, they come and go... But then for the rest of the, for us, it's like eight yeah. hour slots. Hardest working actors <laughs> in the business. Completely. Absolutely. We are Completely. lovely. Thank you so much for taking Thank the time. Because you. you're right in the middle of rehearsal. I am. So I'm now going back to look I at blocks five and six. Brilliant. I will let you get back to it. Thank, Thank you very you. much. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Now, I'm almost through with sharing all of the material that I recorded during the Brighton Fringe Festival. And I'm very much on the hunt for some new content. So if you're an immersive maker, producer or performer, do get in touch. I would love to come and see some of your work and potentially have a chat with you. Not much in the way of news, except that today is actually the official start date of my adventure with the University of Birmingham. So I'm quite excited about that moving forward. As usual, I love to hear from listeners, so please do get in touch. You can email me talkingaboutimmersivetheatre at gmail.com or you can tweet me at Tate Podcast. And I wanted to give a little shout out to Basic Space in London, who have been uh, binging on past episodes this week, so they tell me. So hello, lovely to have you listening and thank you very much for joining us. Next month, I'm going to be sharing my chat with the naked house cleaner, Ethan McHare. So I will catch you in October.